Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome along to the Whitechapel Society December 22 meeting. And we are once again in the Chamberlain Hotel here in the shadow of St. Botolph's Church without an Allgate. And we've just had a wonderful Christmas lunch. We've all had, and if you're listening to this online, I am surrounded by people in funny hats, Christmas jumpers, and in various stages of inebriation. (laughs) So what better way to aid the digestion than to hear a story of debauchery, notoriety, and scandal? Very good. So this afternoon we are delighted to welcome back author Daniel Smith, who you'll all remember did a talk in June 2021 on The Peer and the Gangster, which was a story about the Cray Twins and Lord Boothby. Uh, If you have missed that, you can go back to the excellent Rippercast podcast and re-listen to that. Um, So Dan is a published author. His works include The Sherlock Holmes Companion, An Elementary Guide, the Spade as Mighty as the Sword, A History of the Second World War Dig for Victory Campaign. And finally, his book, The Ardlemont Mystery, The Real-Life Story Behind the Creation of Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> his recent work is called Dolphin Square, A Notorious History, which he's co-authored with Simon Danzuk. 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 Um, and is a subject of this book that he'll be discussing this afternoon. Now, Dolphin Square's proximity to Parliament and the West End and the privacy it afforded its residents attracted a cast of characters that included MPs of every political persuasion as well as spies, actors, businessmen, prostitutes and con men. Dan's painstaking research shines a light onto some very murky corners and tells some entertaining and gripping stories and in the process uh, sheds a light on the social history of our recent past. Ladies and gentlemen, Dan Smith. Thank you very much and um, if at any point I am getting too quiet just do give me a nudge and I'll try and get the volume up again. Um, thank you, first of all, for having me at such a lovely occasion. And I have to say, after all of that, I feel like really I ought to be having a nap rather than a <laughs> chat. But if any of you want to have a nap, feel free. I'll, uh, I'll just pretend it's, it's not happening. Um, yes, so this was the book that I wrote uh, with Simon Danchuk, uh, a former MP and resident of Dolphin Square. And uh, it was, he became a resident, actually, after he resigned as an MP. Um, but very quickly decided it was a place rich for a book to be written about it. So what I will do just to start with is read a short extract from the preface of the book for a little bit of scene setting, and then I'm going to take you on a whistle-stop tour, really, through its history, um, just looking at uh, just a few of the huge cast of characters that have lived there over the years. And hopefully there are some dark stories, but hopefully there will be a little little bit of light in there as well. Okay, so... I'll go from the book first of all. So this is a quote from a promotional brochure from 1935, the year before the square opened. Dolphin Square will, for many reasons, be London's most distinguished address. It will carry the prestige associated with many residents notable in public life and society, members of parliament, people of title, government officials 
and professional men are among those who have been attracted as residents to Dolphin Square by reason of its unique location and exceptional appointments. Worth noting, it's just men who've been attracted as residents. When Dolphin Square officially opened in 1936, it was never intended to be just another block of flats. It was meant to offer a glimpse of the future, a city dwelling for the modern age, 20th century living at its most high-tech and aspirational. Nor was there any pretense of egalitarian classlessness. There were ap apartments for the affluent and the influential, the movers and shakers, the people who ran the country and made it tick. Sure, you didn't have to be a member of the super-rich, although if you were, then welcome, but you needed a certain standing and a good income to secure a tenancy. And there have only ever been tenants at Dolphin Square. It has never been possible to buy a property outright. Located in Pimlico, on the north bank of the River Thames and just up the road from Westminster, the square soon filled with politicians, civil servants, military figures and businessmen, the mix liberally, liberally seasoned with artists, writers, entertainers and other celebrities. There were a, few, a fair few working class faces too, but they were there to serve as caretakers, errand boys, cabbies, tradesmen, shopkeepers and the like. All cogs in the Dolphin Square machine that has ensured life runs smoothly for those who can afford to live there. The complex has been likened to a citadel. Its tall blocks, forged from reinforced concrete and beautified with brick facades, are indeed imposing as they rise up from the development's calming and beloved gardens. There is a sense of the community within and the foreboding world beyond. Others have likened it to a village, a self-contained hamlet in the city, where the mundanity of everyday life sporadically gives way to gossip, drama and scandal. But Dolphin Square is perhaps more accurately described as a high-rise suburban oasis in the metropolis. A bolt hole for those whose social status relies upon the hurly-burly of being in town, but who, when the evening draws in, want some respite from it all. A place where they may put away the public face, hang up the suit, pour a drink and be themselves. For many residents, their apartments have been their main homes, while for others, they're but a pied à terre. For more than probably want to admit it, Dolphin Square has also been a place to hide away illicit lovers. But for nearly all, it has provided a sense of sanctuary. Some residents have stayed for decades, while others merely passed through. With an ever-evolving cast of thousands, much that has gone on here over the decades is unremarkable in the way that most lives, most of the time, are unremarkable to the world at large. But there is always the whiff of gunpowder in the air at Dolphin Square. Sometimes it is just a faint, far-off aroma that you can hardly detect. At other times, bang, there it goes. The combustible mix explodes, filling the nostrils with smoke, and you can only wait for it to clear to see who is okay and who's been caught up in the carnage. Dolphin Square could never be described as a microcosm of the nation as a whole. It is too selective, too much of the establishment for that. Rather, it is a stage set upon which countless dramas in the nation's life and in the lives of some of its most prominent public, public figures have played out in miniature, and every now and then an exaggerated surround sound 3D, 3D technicolour extravaganzas too. It has hosted representatives of every imaginable political hue, from the far left to the far right and everything in between. There have been spies and their spy masters, revolutionaries, diplomats and democrats, even armies in exile. 
Famous love stories have played out, along with monstrous betrayals and sex scandals that failed governments. There have been tragedies, suicides and murder. Tales of extraordinary bravery and daring do, not to mention an enormous dollop of British eccentricity. It is all to be found in this old place, famous and infamous at the same time. Behind the front doors and along the corridors, down in its swimming pool and restaurant, through the shopping arcade and into the gardens. The walls whisper their secrets and sometimes tease with half-truths and lies. Stare into the famous ornamental pool with its elegantly sculpted dolphins and you may just catch a reflection of our society over the best part of a century. The cultural and political landscape has shifted much over the years, but still Dolphin Square serves as a haven for that class of doers and influences who mould our lives. A space where the private and the public collide with perhaps unique regularity and consequence. This book then unpicks some of the stories that have made Dolphin Square such a notable address, a modern school for scandal, and only time will reveal what other tales we are yet to discover. So this is the place. It looks innocent enough, I think. Um, in Pimlico, so I'll give you a little bit of background about how Dolphin Square came into being. So for most of its existence, Pimlico was a bit of marshland in London uh, that happened to have some very smart neighbourhoods around it, Chelsea, Knightsbridge, Hyde Park, St James's. It was owned by the Grosvenor family, the Dukes of Westminster, and in the first half of the 19th century, they teamed up with this man, Thomas Cubitt, who was a pretty visionary um, builder, architect, developer at the time. Um, influence can be still seen across huge swathes of London. And he decided that Pimlico would be his big pet project. Um, he basically wanted to turn it from this non-entity of a place into somewhere where the emerging middle classes could find somewhere to live, particularly as they were moving westwards out of the centre of London. So he developed the area quite quickly in the, at the first half of the 19th century and made a a big success of it, really. Um, he died in 1955, um, sorry, in 1855. Um, the site of Dolphin Square had actually been the site of his works for the area. His son took over the business and was much less enthusiastic about being in the industry at all. And he slowly wound down the business, really. Um, and as part of this, he handed over the works, his father's works, to the army, who then started using it for various purposes, but mostly as a store for army uniforms. This was the case going into the early 20th century, at which point the army decided that this was a very, very expensive clothes storage facility and started trying to look to do something else with it. So then the Grosvenor family, who still had the leasehold, looked around for somebody else to, to do something with the area, which had really started to um, fall back again from where it had been under Thomas Cubitt. At that point, there was a chap called Fred French who appeared on the scene. Now, he was an American developer, and he'd um, started building various high-rise buildings for the middle classes in Manhattan, and done so enormously successfully and he was keen on replicating that model in London. So he was all set to take over from where Cubitt had left off and, and revitalise the area again. Uh, that was until the Wall Street crash and the, the Great Depression when his finances fell away 
and so he had to then start looking for a way out. His way out turned out to be a firm of British builders, um, who the, Cos- the Costains, who are actually still in business to this day. So they took over the project in the early 30s, uh, employed their own architect and uh, designers, and started building, uh, building work in 1934, uh, with the first tranche of the building being ready for use in 1935. So on a 7.5 acre um, setting within Pimlico, they built 1,200 flats that were to house around 3,000 people. So when I talk about in the introduction, this idea of there's a lot of people passing through all the time and most of these people are leading good and perfectly wholesome lives, but there's certainly scope for a a few of the scandalous people to make their way through as well. So the flats open in 1936 and from the outset, uh, thanks to their proximity, particularly to Parliament, to MI5, MI6 and uh, Whitehall, there were a lot of prominent people who were moving in. This is really just a taster of a few of those faces from the early days. So we have Ellen Wilkinson, uh, who's better known as Red Ellen, uh, both for her hair colour and her politics. She was a Labour MP, um, very prominent in uh, representing her constituents, uh, also led a stretch of the Jarrow March, she's the famous Jarrow March. Um, And she had a very tragic end in Dolphin Square, as it turned out, She was made um, the Education Secretary in the post-war government of 1945. She was in her 50s at this stage. Um, But within two years, she was dead. Uh, She was found unconscious in 1947 in her flat in Dolphin Square. Uh, She was taken off to hospital and she never really regained consciousness. She died three days later. Uh, She suffered terribly with asthma. Um, She'd also done a lot of travel as part of her job and I think there was one particular trip down to the West Country a few months earlier where she contracted pneumonia which had weakened her lungs but it was also found that she'd taken, uh, well she'd had an overdose of barbiturates, she was self-medicating not only for lung problems but also for insomnia Um, there's much mystery still as to whether she intended to hasten her demise or not, Um, I think probably she didn't, I think it was probably just an accident, but in the aftermath of her death various facts came to life including that she had been having an affair with the Home Secretary Herbert Morrison and Morrison had recently made it very clear to her that he would not be leaving his wife for her, Um, so she certainly had personal tragedy going on, there were also fairly strong rumours she was about to be manoeuvred out in a cabinet reshuffle. So it, it was a sad end to one of the, the square's early, um, early political superstars. Um, shortly after she moved in, in 1940, a pre-parliamentary Harold Wilson also took up a flat. He was a civil servant at the time, being posted to London, um, and he supposedly um, fell upon Dolphin Square because it was the only place in London that he could find where you could get a good hot bath at four o'clock in the morning, which is all thanks to the special bespoke um, plumbing system that Dolphin Square had. Um, that, that was one of the aspects of life in Dolphin Square. Um, it, it has its own water supply, its own plumbing systems, its own heating, it had its own air raid shelters, pretty much operated as its own entity within London. So he was there in 1940. At the same time, there's Margaret Lockwood, who was one of the great stars of the 
Silver Screen. Uh, she'd recently been in Hitchcock's The Lady Vanishes. And while she was at Dolphin Square, she also starred in The Wicked Lady, which was the first UK film to um, make a million pounds at the box office. So she was real box office. Um, she also embarked on... Her, her husband at the time uh, was posted overseas during the war. He was working in intelligence, and she was basically very lonely on her own with a young child um, in London and embarked on a very ill-advised affair uh, that did not go the distance, but nonetheless um, came to the attention of the newspapers and resulted in her divorce. So she was another one of the Square's early victims of scandal, really. And then we have Charles de Gaulle. Um, now, the free French were given office space in Dolphin Square early on in the war. We know this for certain. There were, uh, at least by 1942, the free French had uh, administrative um, posts within the square. Whether de Gaulle actually ever lived there is more moot. Um, there's no definitive evidence that he did. But the record-keeping at Dolphin Square is, is quite a thing to behold, very often because it doesn't really exist. So we spoke to people who, as I, as I said in the introduction, um, you can only ever have tenancies at Dolphin Square. And in those days, you would be interviewed by often a kind of former, like an ex-military figure, a colonel or a major who looked after, uh, who was going, coming in and out of the flats. Um, and you, you sometimes had the choice, if you were moving out of the flats, you could pass on your tenancy to somebody that you had hand-picked, um, but who would then also have to get the approval of Major or Colonel, whoever it was, who was looking after that side of things at the time. Um, so we know when we were researching the book from speaking to people who had tenancies there, that they witnessed the uh, authorities in charge of looking after the apartment Simply, they'd take a folder, and when you moved in, they'd rip out the old paperwork of the previous tenants and bin it. So it was a, something of a mystery. There are all sorts of gaps in the Dolphin Square history, uh, which is, uh, I'm sure, how many of the residents uh, preferred it. So we don't know about De Gaulle, but we do know that one prominent um, figure in the entertainment world, who I'll come on to in a little bit, who moved there in the 50s was told definitively that he was moving into the flat that de Gaulle had previously stayed in. So there is some evidence to suggest he was there. Now, this woman, um, the second from the left, is a woman called Bertha Verrill. And she's not one of the square's most famous personalities, but she's somebody that I found really fascinating. Uh, just wanted to briefly share her story. She was quite unusual for the time in that she was a professional jockey. She was kind of moderately successful, but she was uh, no, no superstar. But she'd done well enough, and she came from a, a fairly well-to-do family that she was able to afford a flat in the square. Um, what I like most about her is she was in her 40s by the time this photo was taken um, in the late 30s. She was quite a keen drinker. And on several occasions, she was arrested for being drunk in charge of a horse around, <laughs> around Pimlico and Westminster, and particularly in Hyde Park as well. She'd go racing around Rotten Row in Hyde Park. Um, on one occasion, she was arrested, and the police officer noted down that she was maudlin drunk. Um, and then the other officer with him said that she'd been riding at a similar speed to the, 
what one would expect in the derby. Um, she claimed on that occasion she had not been drunk at all, but she had merely taken an odd-smelling nerve tonic, um, which I, I suspect might have been gin, but there we are. Um, so she, she was a great character. Um, she stayed in the, in the square for a little while, uh, moved out in the 40s, which people did, you know, some, some people would be there for a long, long time, but there was a lot of transients in the, these early years. But she was certainly one of the, the more famous, well-known figures within the square for her, her horse antics. Um, another man who didn't exactly keep a low profile, but was perhaps more discreet in his behaviour, was this chap, Maxwell Knight. Um, he was a tall, reasonably ungainly figure. He was always dressed in tweeds, by and large. Kind of old-fashioned English eccentric. He was a fairly successful thriller writer. He played drums in a jazz band, and he was also a very keen naturalist. Now, apparently, he had all sorts of animals pass through his flat in Dolphin Square, including bear cubs, lion cubs, and monkeys. Um, during the war, as I mentioned, Dolphin Square had its own air raid shelters and they were divided at various points for, along all sorts of lines, so there were spaces for those who snored and those who didn't snore, <laughs> there were spaces for those who had animals, and it was reported during the war that there were lion, lion cubs down in the air raid shelter at one point, and they were presumably Maxwell Knights. After the war, he became quite famous on uh, broadcasting on the BBC um, uh, nature programmes for children. Um, he's known as Uncle Max. Um, that was really how the world knew him. What most people didn't know at the time was that he was a very prominent figure within MI5. Uh, in fact, he ran a division of it, B5B, uh, that looked at... Uh, party infiltration, right-wing party infiltration within the UK, and he managed to persuade his um, superiors within MI5 to let him run <coughs> this branch out of his flat in Dolphin Square. In fact, he ended up having tenancies on three flats, and he had an assistant who lived there as well, so that Dolphin Square became a real base of MI5. Um, he worked with all sorts of notable figures, he, uh, one of his agents was Tom Dryberg, who would go on to become chairman of the Labour Party and was a man not unfamiliar with scandal himself, uh, but Dryberg was certainly a frequent visitor to Dolphin Square. Um, and Knight was also a colleague of Ian Fleming, and uh, obviously there are always all sorts of people put forward as the model for different characters within the Bond stories. But Maxwell Knight's MI5 codename was M, and it seems very likely that he was at least in part a model for the character of M in Fleming's books. Now, in 1940, Fleming got some interesting neighbours, a new couple who moved in upstairs from them. It was these two, Oswald Mosley and Diana, <laughs> the famous Mitford sisters, and literally they lived in the flat above, um, above Knight. Now, this was uh, an interesting time for the Mosleys. Obviously, Oswald Mosley was head of the British fascists at the time, and there was a lot of debate within government at this stage about how big a risk he, he um, posed to national security. Uh, there were those who said he was a, an active danger, and there were others who saw him much more of a, as a nuisance. And by and large, going into 1940, 
that school who saw him as a, a nuisance were in the ascendancy. But um, Knight was not convinced, and in May 1940, so not long after he got them as neighbours, he had a meeting with the Home Secretary, uh, with the head of MI5, and with the Chief of the Imperial General Staff, where he uh, voiced his concerns about Mosley, and indeed about both, both of the couple. Um, we now know from recently released MI5 papers that MI5 in many ways regarded uh, Diana Mosley as more of a security risk than, than Oswald. Anyway, the following evening after Knight had had that meeting, the Home Secretary briefed Churchill and within days an amendment was made to the, um, uh, to the Internment Act which had been passed uh, the previous year extending the, uh, the, the number of people who, who come under its remit of whom Mosley was then one. Um, so in 90, uh, uh, the very next day after the amendment was passed, the police uh, visited his Pimlico flat, hoping to find him in Dolphin Square, planning to arrest him. In fact, the Mosleys were staying at uh, another of their estates in Buckinghamshire. So there was a day of cat and mouse, where basically the police had come to Dolphin Square, not found them there, and driven out to Buckinghamshire, not realising that by that point the Mosleys were on their way back to Dolphin Square. But they did manage to get four officers back to the flats to await their arrival, and of course uh, Mosley was arrested on his arrival uh, on his return to the flat. Uh, he was taken off to Brixton first, and then on to Holloway, where he spent the next three and a half years. Um, Diana wasn't arrested that day, but she would be a few weeks later, and she would spend a similar amount of time um, with Mosley uh, in jail. Uh, she was allowed out once, as far as I can tell, which was to go to court to give evidence after their flat in Dolphin Square, which is the lease of which they had kept on, was burgled. Um, uh, somebody was convicted of this burglary. Um, the, the big uh, prize that he got on that day was £10 worth of <laughs> Diana's silk stockings, which had apparently been left in the flat that day. So you can see we're already very early on, we're kind of into these games of, of high politics and espionage within the square. But it wasn't all so grim. Here we have two sisters. These are two of my favourite characters from the book, Ida and Louise Cook. Um, so they were two spinster sisters and they lived most of their lives at the family home in Ballon. But they took a lease um, early on, I think in the late 30s, maybe 1940. On, on a flat in the square. Uh, Louise was a civil service secretary, and Ida, by this time, was a very successful Mills and Boone author. They both loved opera, and that was their great passion, and particularly with Ida's royalties from her books, um, just led to believe were much higher than they are today, I'll just point out. Um, they were able to travel across the continent and go to opera concerts, you know, almost weekly all over the place. They became friends with various conductors and opera singers, and it was one such couple, a conductor and his opera singer wife, uh, they met in Austria um, early on in the war, and the uh, conductor, the husband, asked them to check up on two Jewish friends of theirs who had recently fled to London, which the Cooks suitably did. 
But from there, things developed, and they started mm. assisting other refugees who were trying to flee Germany at the time. And their role, first of all, was to help extract the wealth of Jewish families who weren't allowed to take it. At this stage, they were allowed to come out of the country themselves, but they could not bring their jewellery, any significant amount of money, any other um, assets that they had with them. So what the cooks would do was they would fly out from Croydon Airport Friday night, and they would go to somewhere in Europe where there was an operatic event. And as the war progressed, it turned out that some of these operatic events would be put on specifically to give the cooks an excuse to fly to wherever it was in Europe. They'd fly out from Croydon Airport, they'd wear their humble, normal, everyday clothes, they'd go to their concert, they would then pick up, typically furs, jewellery and amounts of cash from people who are either already on their route um, towards London or were planning to go in the very near future and they would uh, choose a different airport to the one that they came into a country in so they wouldn't be recognised and they would simply change into whatever they'd been given you know they would walk they would arrive in their humble clothes they would leave the country in fur coats with thousands and thousands of pounds of jewellery on them and uh, in this way they were able to smuggle out um, assets for people who would a few weeks later turn up at Dolphin Square to reclaim their wealth having arrived um, out of the clutches of the Nazi authorities they were enormously successful at this, Uh, they would talk about it later, they said some of it they just thought was the fact that uh, people thought that two, two spinster sisters like them just wouldn't be up to no good. Um, if anybody questioned them, they would uh, suggest that they were afraid to leave their riches and finery back home in the UK for fear that some relative or other would steal it from them. So they liked to carry it, carry it with them wherever they went, which was an excuse which worked very, very often. Other times, they just brazenly, you know, went ahead and did it. So on one occasion, Ida, I think it was, said she had uh, put on a fur coat and had an enormous diamond brooch on the the lapel of this coat. And she was asked about it on the border. And she claimed that it was just costume jewellery that she bought from a Woolworths down the road. And she was believed. And it was enormously successful. And as the war progressed, they started helping people smuggle their way across the continent as well and their flat in Dolphin Square became a safe house so we think that at least 30 people uh, escaped the Nazis and and had their start in London where they would be provided with papers, they'd be provided with contacts who'd be able to give uh, work to new arrivals um, and sometimes even some money as well so they had this incredible life story Um, in later years they kept the flat on, even though they weren't living there very much at all, they kept the flat on. Uh, in later years after the war, uh, it was often used to house um, people from the operatic world who were a bit down on their uppers. Um, and in 1964, we also know that Maria Callas came to the flat and gave a concert to raise funds for their work. So um, they're definitely two of my favourite characters from the book, and, and hopefully an indication that what went on in Dolphin Square wasn't all dark and awful. Um, we'll move into the 50s, and here we have an interesting menage a trois. 
So Peter Finch was, uh, as you may well know, a hugely successful actor of uh, Australian origins. He would go on to win an Oscar posthumously in 1977. Uh, when he was starting to make his way on the stage in Australia as a young man, actually Vivian Lee and Laurence Olivier were touring the country at the time and they saw his work. And Olivier was really pivotal in encouraging Finch to come over and, and take his chances in London, which Finch did. Uh, he married uh, a ballerina, Tamara uh, Chinarovna, I think, I believe that's how you pronounce her name, uh, in 1943, and the couple moved in with their young child in 1949, took up a flat then. Um, all was going pretty well. Peter Finch's career was forging ahead. Then, around two o'clock in the morning, on a cold January morning in uh, 1953, there was a ring of the doorbell at the Dolphin Square flat. It rang, it rang again and again and again. And so uh, Tamara got up, she found a dressing gown, she went to the door, she opened it just enough so she could see who was there. And she saw Vivian Lee dressed in a translucent white dress and a long mink coat. And she was highly animated. Now, as we now know, um, uh, Vivian Lee was having some mental health problems at this time uh, and was almost certainly going through an episode on this particular night. Anyway, they invited her in. Um, she sat down, uh, continued to talk in a quite agitated manner and it emerged throughout the conversation that she was about to start work on a movie um, called Elephant Walk in Ceylon, Sri Lanka as it is now. Uh, she was signed up to do it, as had Olivier, but Olivier was too ill. He was, well, he was exhausted, basically, and he wasn't going to be starring in the film. They then approached Marlon Brando, Ralph Richardson, Clark Gable. All of them had said they couldn't do it for one reason or another. So she decided she wanted Peter Finch for the role. So a few weeks later, the two of them are flying to Ceylon. And uh, professionally, it was... A, an absolute disaster of a movie. Um, Vivian Lee's own health was all over the place at this stage. It was decided she wouldn't be able to continue with the film, and so Elizabeth Taylor was brought in as a, as a late replacement for her. But she stayed on set for a lot of the filming, and it was at this stage that she and Finch began uh, a passionate affair that would go on for the next three years. Um, in the end, Olivier was couldn't help but be aware that this affair was going on. Tamara too knew what was happening. Uh, Vivian Lee would turn up at all times of the day and night um, to whisk Peter Finch off, regardless of what was going on in his family life. Um, in uh, Christmas of, I think it was 50, yeah, 1955, um, the two of them actually left their partners for over Christmas and went and spent it together in the south of France. That was really the last straw for Olivier. Um, so when they uh, were all back in, the, in London or in England um, after the, that Christmas, he uh, summoned Finch to his sort of country pile and they had it out. And Vivian Lee was given a very clear ultimatum that she had to make her choice, which of them she was going to stay with. In the end, she chose Olivier. Peter Finch was not surprised at all. He said she, he never for a moment imagined she'd give up the title or the lifestyle to be with him. And, uh, and so it proved. But that was a, a kind of taste of Hollywood glamour that started coming to the 
the square in the 50s. There were also supposed to be minor members of European royalty milling around the square as well. Um, other stars, perhaps possibly less glamorous, I don't know, but that may be not fair, but um, Shirley Batty was resident there for a little while, Diana Dawes as well. Um, then to the 60s, we have a change of pace again, which starts with this man, John Battle. So in 1961, he was working as a fairly mid-ranking civil servant at the Admiralty, um, and he was he just stepped out of the office, he was on the mall, and he was about to make his way back to his flat in Dolphin Square, when he was approached by two plainclothes policemen, bundled into the back of a car, and he wouldn't see Dolphin Square again for another ten years. It turned out that Vassal had been spying for the Soviet Union since 1954, and um, despite being a fairly unremarkable civil servant, he proved to be a very, very good spy. Um, he'd been caught in a classic honey trap. He'd been posted to Moscow um, in the early 50s. Uh, he was homosexual. He'd uh, ended up in a compromising situation with a party in Moscow where one of his colleagues, one of his Russian colleagues, had taken him. Photographs were taken. He was threatened with being exposed and the photos sent to his family if he didn't agree to start spying. So he did. Uh, to begin with, he was an unpaid spy, but as the years progressed and the value of the material he was supplying grew, he started earning very good money from the process. This was a very sensitive time as well. Uh, Vassal was not the only spy coming to light. This was at the time when John Blake had just got an enormously long prison sentence after being exposed <coughs> as well, and the Portland spy ring had just been uncovered. There was also further controversy. So it's a Macmillan um, government at the time. And uh, there was a chap called Tamgal Braith, who was um, Vassal's boss. And there was a suggestion that when, when people asked how had this lowly civil servant got away with it for so long, there was a suggestion that he and Galbraith had had some sort of inappropriate relationship. This was almost certainly completely unfounded. Um, there was a sort of media frenzy, and as I say, there was a, a frenzy at the time about all things espionage anyway. And um, the, the newspapers got hold of some notes where uh, um, Galbraith would write to Vassal and he, he could kind of address him as Dear Vassal or something like, you know, something completely incongruous, but that was being used as evidence of something not normal going on here. So there's a great scandal about this. And Macmillan allowed Galbraith to resign. Uh, Galbraith was subsequently cleared of any wrongdoing, and Macmillan was pretty horrified by the whole episode. He'd, he'd been quite fond of Galbraith, and, and he felt awful, genuinely awful, that he'd let this man, this innocent man, fall on his sword. Um, which is interesting because this will then uh, influence his thinking uh, when it comes to Profumo, uh, that's shortly about to happen as well. Anyway, Dolphin Square becomes actually part of the story in the John Vassal case. So Vassal was earning £700 a year as a civil servant. He had a beautiful flat, which would have cost him over half of that, uh, purely on the rent. Um, but he'd also managed to fill it out with the most extravagant antiques. He had wardrobes full of beautiful um, tailor-made suits. He was taking large numbers of foreign holidays each year. And so after the scandal blew up, people started to ask the question of 
why did no one notice that this humble civil servant was living this lavish lifestyle? And why did no one ask the obvious question, where's the money coming from? And so it's an interesting <laughs> staging post for Dolphin Square. So for the first time, really, it's going from beyond being the scene, the setting for, uh, for scandal to being actually part of the narrative itself. And then a year later, we have Christine Keeler turn up. As you, I'm sure you're all aware of the Profumo scandal. Keeler was a young woman, she was 20 years old, 1961. She's taken by her friend, um, mentor, call him what you want, Stephen Ward to Cliveden, where she meets John Profumo, uh, who is the Minister for War. Um, they begin a passionate affair, which goes on, depending on who you believe, uh, until the end of 1961. In 1962, Keeler is embroiled in a, an unhappy love triangle, I think it's fair to say, that involves a Jamaican-born jazz singer called Lucky Gordon and an Antiguan jazz promoter called Johnny Edgecombe. And it's as a result of their rivalry and guns gunshots being fired as a result of that that the Profumo affair explodes. So the exact chronology of when everything happens with Keeler and Profumo is really mysterious. Profumo always said it was over by December 61, um, at which point Keeler moves into Dolphin Square. Now she moves into Dolphin Square because her friend Mandy Rice Davis is already living there. Um, Mandy Rice Davis had been in a relationship with Peter Rackman, the notorious uh, brothel runner and slum landlord. Uh, they had a very tempestuous affair. I think Rackman was 25, 30 years older than Rice Davis. Um, and at some point, she had got fairly fed up with him and she had, he had basically provided her with a, this rather nice Dolphin Square flat to try and appease her and also so they could have some space from each other. She did not like Dolphin Square, she just never took to it at all. She felt very lonely in there, so she invited Keeler to move in. Keeler duly does, um, at which point uh, Rice Davis and Rackman um, come to a kind of agreement that they're getting on again, so she moves out. So now Keeler's stuck in Dolphin Square, also feeling quite lonely. Uh, Fume Scandal has not yet blown up, but uh, she has quite a time of it in there. Uh, in later years, she would claim that she had an abortion in January of 1962 while she was a resident, um, which she claimed was Profumo's baby. There's much debate, you know, it's difficult to know if it, how much to believe those kind of stories when they're told years later, and obviously in memoirs for money in many cases, but uh, that was what she claimed. Um, she was also in, right in the middle of the, the worst months of the, the love triangle with Lucky Gordon and, and Johnny Edgecombe. Lucky Gordon in particular was a regular visitor and on one occasion he arrived while she was hosting a party in the flat and uh, he ushered everybody else out of the building um, principally because he'd found a, a fire axe which was hung on the door and, and urged them all out with some force and held her prisoner for three or four days. It was only when he ran out of cigarettes and went down the shop to buy a new packet that she was able to escape. Um, so she had a pretty terrible time there. Um, then the Profumo scandal, she, she leaves in 1962, later on in the year, and of course the Profumo scandal breaks in um, 63. 
and uh, Macmillan at this stage also has the John Vassell scandal very clearly in his mind where he'd let a good man go and regretted it deeply having had the promise from Profumo that there had been nothing untoward going on he let, lets Profumo stay and of course we all know what happens there um, so really Macmillan in each of these scandals makes the wrong call on who to trust and who not to trust um, but uh, Subsequently, when there was the, the public inquiry into the Profumo affair, uh, there, was, there were various witnesses, two key witnesses in particular, who claimed that they had seen Profumo visiting Keeler at Dolphin Square on numerous occasions and indeed found them in bed together on one occasion um, well into 1962. Uh, the judge dismissed it um, out of hand, basically because uh, they were of suitably low class that he thought he could just dismiss them without you know second thoughts anyway um, but it's an interesting possibility that perhaps the Profumo affair did go on under Dolphin Square's roof and I find it quite interesting that um, Dolphin Square having been such a prominent feature of the Vassal scandal um, which was then you know, completely overwhelmed by the Profumo scandal but actually Dolphin Square has managed to keep its name mostly out of the scandal, but it was really there again very centrally. And we come on to the 70s, and this is Delors Price, and she was a 22-year-old student teacher in Northern Ireland, but she was also a fairly senior planner within the IRA at the time. And in March 1973, she led um, the, the gang who launched the first major bombing campaign on the mainland during the Troubles. Uh, their plan was to plant four bombs around London, four car bombs, one outside the Old Bailey, one outside the Ministry of Agriculture, one at an army recruitment office in Whitehall, and one outside Scotland Yard. So in the months leading up to the attack, they'd uh, stolen four cars within Northern Ireland, and they then um, shipped them over to Liverpool and drove down from Liverpool and um, they then stored them overnight in an underground car park the underground car park at Dolphin Square so on the night of uh, 7th of March 1973 there were these four vehicles in there all loaded to the gunnels with dynamite and nobody knows anything about them Particularly not a chap who we interviewed for the book, uh, a man called Tommy Foster, who worked in the car park at the time. He was quite a junior figure, but he worked in the car park at the time. And they spotted one of these cars, a Ford Cortina, and it had committed the biggest sin you could commit in the Dolphin Square car park at that time. It was parked in a resident <coughs> bay. So his boss said, that car cannot stay there. So between the two of them, they jacked the car up and moved it 70 yards across the car park to one of the public spaces completely oblivious to its contents and what havoc they were both in. As it happened, uh, the four, um, not all the bombs went off successfully the next day, but some of them did. There were 200 casualties. There was one fatality, a man who died of a heart attack uh, just shortly after one of the explosions. Um, the police then made the connection, realised these four cars had all been parked in Dolphin Square, came back to talk to Tommy Foster drove him off to the local station and interrogated him for hours about what he knew 
which was basically nothing at all. Um, and as he recalls it, having spent hours and hours there in quite arduous circumstances, uh, they told him that he was free to go and he asked if they could give him a lift back to his work in Dolphin Square and him being a disappointment and having provided him with no decent intelligence, they told him in no uncertain terms he was going to be walking home. <laughs> the 70s is a, is a thriving time for scandal in Dolphin Square and, um, and it takes on all sorts of shapes and, and types. So here we have Sybil Benson's brothel. <laughs> so on the 17th of January 1971, a couple of, couple of years before the IRA bombs, the people ran an expose of this, um, of this brothel that was run from a three-bedroom flat in Duncan House. I should, should say Dolphin Square was made up of 12 blocks each named after major figures from British uh, naval history. So this was a flat in Duncan House. And Sybil Benson, I think, was quite enthusiastic in em embracing this expose. Uh, she describes her flat as her torture house. She spoke to the journalist, her torture house. Uh, she talked about uh, a clientele who she described herself as perverts. Um, she said they included politicians, actors, and members of the aristocracy. Um, and she was very upfront about the finances of it all as well. She said she was paying £13, 7 shillings, and sixpence a week uh, for the rent, and uh, the flat, average, on average, generated £1,260 a week. <laughs> so, I mean, who can blame her? But it was. <laughs> It was. It didn't work out brilliantly for her because um, she she had a Czech diplomat that lived next door. She was very, you know, kind of told the journalist she led a proper house, really. You know, and they had their rules and regulations, and they were considerate of their neighbours. And she knew that she had this Czech diplomat. She tried not to disturb him, and she said, you know, she had strict opening hours, which was twelve till six every day, and not on Sundays. Um, <laughs> But once word got to the ears of the, the, um, the powers that be at Dolphin Square, uh, she was forced to give up the lease and she was out of Dolphin Square within a fortnight of the story breaking. So who knows where she went next and whether she was earning as much money. But um, for a while it served her well. If that, was, if that is a, a sort of sense of carry on going on here, we also have Sid, and, Sid James and Barbara Windsor put in an appearance about the same time sort of 72, 73, 74. Um, at the time, Barbara Windsor is married to Ronnie Knight, who is an associate of the craze, amongst other things. Um, Sid James is, is married, uh, been married for a long, long time by this stage, um, living in Buckinghamshire. In 1974, <coughs> the pair of them are starring in a West End production based on the Carry On films. Um, now, Sid James has a back injury, he has a very bad back, because at some point during his career, whilst on stage, a safety curtain had fallen on him. Um, how bad it really was at this stage is difficult to know, but he wasn't, his marriage wasn't the happiest just then, and he told his wife that it was causing him excruciating pain to have to commute back from London to the home in Buckinghamshire each day. So he thought it'd be much better during the West End run if he took a flat in Dolphin Square. Can you guess where he took his flat? 
Uh, funnily enough, Barbara Windsor had already looked at a flat there some years earlier when she'd been thinking of leaving Ronnie Knight for another lover. Um, she'd seen a flat that she'd been very keen on, but Dolphin Square had a very strict no-pets policy, and she had a poodle, Frenchie, who she was you know, utterly beloved to her, and because she wouldn't be able to take the dog, she, she turned down Dolphin Square at that point. Uh, but she found herself there a lot of the time in 1974 in what she described as the perfect love nest. So um, from, I, I think, you know, Peter Finch and Vivian Lee and Olivier is quite glamorous and this is definitely the proper carry-on version. <laughs> <laughs> and then we come to one of the dark, darker episodes... It always strikes me with everything that happened in Dolphin Square over the years um, that it's not until 1975 that we know there was a murder in the square. There were very suspicious deaths at, at points along the way, but none ever proved to be murder. It's a very strange thing with Dolphin Square. There's a lot of bodies found in baths after often weeks or months at a time undiscovered. So there's a number of cases of that. But none of those are ever found to be murder. But then we stumbled, when we were researching the book, we stumbled across this, just this little piece in the Daily Mirror. And it's one of the stories that's really stayed with me from the book. Um, it, not only for the, the obvious tragedy of it, but also for the window that kind of shines on, on the, the time and, and what life was like back then. Um, this story got a little bit of attention in the media when it first broke um, headlines like this. Solicitor was found murdered yesterday with his head battered and throat cut. Believe, please believe it is the second homosexual murder in Pimlico within three months. This is chap Michael Shepley. Now, we then tried to trace what happened with the case, and it was really, really difficult. In the end, we found a little article in the Telegraph uh, months later that reported the conclusion of the subsequent trial uh, but it was very brief and didn't give much detail so we managed to track down some relatives of Michael Shepley and we approached them you know, very aware that this must be a delicate subject we approached them very cautiously and initially uh, I spoke to Michael Shepley's sister-in-law and to begin with she was understandably quite defensive and she basically did not want us to go, be going anywhere near this so we kind of took a step back then not long afterwards she got back in contact and said she'd actually spoken to um, other members of the family and particularly younger generations who were aware of Michael Shepley, the victim but they really themselves had lost in the midst of time what had happened during the trial and what the outcome had been and this ge younger generation were quite keen and thought it was the right thing to do now to find out what had actually happened to their relative all this time ago. So with them, we did quite a lot of work, and between us all, we were able to piece the story back together again. And it's a really sad story. That Michael Shepley is uh, a 39-year-old solicitor. He worked for the uh, local authority in London. He was South African-born, Oxford-educated, very successful in his career, apparently extremely likeable, very cultured, um, again, loved opera, like the, the Cook sisters, often to be seen out at the theatre and uh, in art galleries and, and making the best of what London has to offer. 
he was also homosexual. Um, now, homosexuality had been decriminalised decriminalised in 1967, eight years ago, but it's very clear um, from his story and many others within Dolphin Square that it was, as will come as no surprise, I'm sure to most of you, it was still not the dumb thing to be openly homosexual in the 1970s. Um, he would regularly frequent Piccadilly Circus, which at the time was <coughs> notorious for what was known as the meat rack. Um, basically, young male prostitutes were to be found. Uh, he was known, well known enough there that the police had warned him that there was, uh, uh, there'd been reports of a number of crimes around this time of people working in pairs where somebody would go and pick up somebody from the meat rack return to their property, there'd be a knock at the door, a few minutes later it would be uh, a colleague of the, of the boy who'd been picked up or the young man who'd been picked up, uh, the two of them would then attack the, the homeowner, rob them, and it was a fairly simple equation that they did it on the basis that most of those people were unlikely to then go and report it to the, to the police. This is exactly what happened to Michael Shepley, and we don't know what went wrong, but clearly something went wrong and it became a much more savage attack. We spoke to somebody else who'd been a victim of a similar attack actually around the same time and for a while the police thought it might have been the same person, the same people but the Shetley incident just went that clearly went that extra long way um, he didn't have his throat cut but there was an attempt to strangle him and he actually died of a stab wound to the heart it was a horrific attack um, at the time, his mother really struggled almost as much with the fact that her son was gay as with the fact that he'd been murdered in this way. We saw letters from her. Um, she, she really came up with a fictional existence for him uh, and, and reasons for why he'd been killed. At one point, because this had happened shortly, you know, within a couple of years of the IRA attack, she convinced herself that his flat had previously been owned by, or previously been um, rented by somebody from the Irish uh, security forces and that it was as a reason, that was the reason why Shepley had been mistakenly targeted. It was just not true, it was all nonsense, but it was, um, it was hard to read these letters and it remains a subject that obviously causes a lot of pain within the Shepley family but I think having got to the bottom of what happened um, they the generations alive today are, are much more comfortable with the fact that the truth is now out there rather than these kind of fictional rumours that spun around their family um, in the end the assailants were arrested um, the boy uh, that Shepley picked up was 18 years old he was charged with murder but acquitted but he was um, found guilty of conspiracy uh, to rob and served a short sentence in Borstal. His companion was 24 years old and was convicted of murder and given a life sentence. Um, but it's just a very tragic story and, and a real insight into what, what's hopefully a, a world of the past now I think. Um, there we go, that's it. I'm there's some of the darkness here. We'll go on to some other things now. Well, I'm not, I'm not sure this is much of an improvement, but we'll go into the 80s. Now, Dane Shirley Porter was not 
resident um, within Dolphin Square, but her deputy on Westminster Council, David Weeks, was, um, as were uh, two other um, prominent Conservatives at the time, a husband and wife, uh, the Prendergast, so Tony and Simone Prendergast. Um, now, the Prendergast were quite influential in Westminster at the time. They did not like Shirley Porter at all. They just didn't get on. And uh, as you may well remember, so in 1986, there are local elections within Westminster and Labour comes perilously close to knocking out um, the Conservative majority on the council. Uh, so Shirley Porter and David Weeks come up with a plan to gerrymander um, and essentially uh, where there are potential uh, constituencies that Labour might win, they move out those people they predict will be Labour voters and try to move Conservative voters in. They do this principally by um, doing up uh, flats, council-run flats, and offering them for sale uh, under the right-to-buy scheme um, in the belief that most people who are buying at that time will instinctively be Conservative voters. Um, they also uh, redirect money for infrastructure um, uh, projects in the rest of the borough towards the constituencies that they, they uh, want to fill with Conservative voters and they, in various ways, manage to urge those they seem to be most likely Labour voters either out of Westminster altogether or into super safe Conservative constituencies where they won't be able to do any harm. So they, they particularly looked at um, teachers, nurses, those that they thought would, would more likely be voting um, for Kinnock at that time. Um, and gradually rumours of what was going, going on came to light and certainly came to the ears of the Prendergast and they worked with the Labour opposition despite being Conservative Party stalwarts to try to get to the truth of this. Um, there's some kind of real heated exchanges between the three of them, in particular um, Simone did some, a good job of taking Shirley Porter to task on various occasions. Uh, one event she screamed at her that she, she ought to be representing the people who hand out leaflets and make chocolate fudge for jolly fundraising events. The people who want to be good Conservatives and help the Conservative government. And it was largely because of the Prendergasts, um, in conjunction with kind of dogged investigations by the Labour opposition, that the whole scandal came to light. Um, as you may well know, uh, Porter went to uh, fled to Israel um, and was fined millions and millions of pounds for the for her antics, which she never really paid. David Weeks remained in Dolphin Square. He was fined uh, a significant amount, much less than her. I think something like seventy-seven thousand pounds, which he did end up paying back. Um, and this was in the heyday. When, when Dolphin Square opened, there was a quite strict policy by those uh, looking after the tenancies that there should be political balance. And they really, they tried a system where you had so many Conservatives, so many Labour, and if a conservative, somebody Conservative left, you replaced them with Conservatives, somebody Labour left, somebody from Labour left, you replaced them with somebody else from Labour. They tried to keep that balance. The, in the 80s, Dolphin Square was very much the... Can I okay that? Yeah. Uh, was very much of the uh, Conservatives. Um, 
Now that would change certainly after Blair came into power. Um, Dolphin Square was for a while very much of Labour. I'd say today uh, there's pretty much political balance again. Um, and of course, Haynes of Age would not be the last major political scandal to hit the square. Um, when the expenses scandal broke in 2009-2010, Dolphin Square was absolutely pivotal to that, not least because there were various, not only were people uh, claiming expenses for um, effectively second homes in Dolphin Square, but at the time, various MPs had also been offered large amounts of money to vacate their um, tenancies because there was an American company who were looking to redevelop at the time. So this was by no means the last of the great political scandals, but it was quite quite a good, juicy, satisfying one. Um, now, when we wrote the book, Simon and I, we also knew we were going to have to deal with um, probably what Dolphin Square has become most notorious for, which is allegations of organised abuse. Um, this I won't, won't dwell on this, this being a festive occasion, I won't dwell on this for too long, but I, I thought I really ought to cover it to some extent. Um, this really came to a head in 2014 uh, with this man who was known at the time as Nick, um, who made allegations of a, uh, a VIP um, paedophile ring that operated um, throughout London, but principally in Dolphin Square, and that was responsible for the murders of three children. And at the time, uh, Metro Metropolitan Police said that they considered the allegations to be credible and true. Um, now, as you may remember, this set off a you know a real domino rally of, of uh, events in which various prominent public figures were accused of some terrible things, and basically, in the end, Nick was shown to have fabricated the allegations. Uh, he was subsequently arrested and put on trial himself and is now serving an 18-year prison sentence. So when we came to write the book, we thought very much, well, we're going to have to deal with this and it will be a case of saying it's all nonsense and then we'll move on. And I can confirm that Nick's stories were all nonsense, but um, the more we delved, the more that there seemed like it was too simple a case to say Dolphin Square has no case to answer at all. Um, which is certainly what uh, is often argued these days. I mean, wh whenever Dolphin Square tends to get mentioned in the press now, uh, it's just a complete undermining of any suggestion that anything ever bad happened at Dolphin Square. And I think that's a very difficult position to hold. Uh, we interviewed, and we saw the evidence of, and personally interviewed uh, victims of abuse, police officers, solicitors, drivers, Dolphin Square had a driving pool for years and years and years and um, many of those people were, you know, the eyewitnesses to things which uh, were, cl were clearly not right. Um, we deal, we have a chapter in the book that deals with the testimony of one victim in particular um, and so I think in, in particular uh, there was the independent inquiry into child sex abuse um, that closed, I don't know if it was last year or the year before, uh, but there was lots of evidence given there in which Dolphin Square appeared quite prominently, and much of that evidence was from police officers. Um, and interestingly, we also found just one of those little threads that you sometimes pull when you're 
you're researching books. David Weeks, Shirley Force's deputy, um, we interviewed him, and he's very personable, and he told us about how he had come to get his flat in the 70s when he was a young man starting out in his career, and he had to have one of these interviews with Colonel or Major, whoever it was, it happened to be at the time, and he... Um, he was not sure how that was going to go because he didn't have much of a track record behind him. He wasn't confident he'd get a flat. But he was already active within the Conservative Party and he'd uh, become friends with a chap called uh, William Van Straubenzi, who was a solicitor. And he also happened to serve as a legal advisor to the Dolphin Square Trust, which ran, ran things for the residents. Um, he didn't live at the square, but uh, he... he said to David Weeks, if you go to your interview, just tell them that you're a friend of mine, that will be fine. And that is what happened. Now, when David Weeks told, and I should say before I go on with any of this, there is no suggestion that David Weeks had any involvement in anything untoward, other than the Shirley Porter scandal. Um, and I think what he told us was in complete innocence. But I, the name, when he said about William Van Strabenzia, the name rang a bell with me. And I realised it was from because I'd recently been looking at lots of the evidence that had been given in the ICSA inquiry. And during that inquiry, MI5 were asked <coughs> to submit evidence, which they did very, very reluctantly. But they, they did, in the end, submit a statement about various uh, public figures who they'd had concerns about regarding abuse. Um, and one of those was William Van Strawensey, who had gone on to become a Conservative MP and a Northern Irish minister. And MI5, in their evidence to, to the ICSA inquiry, suggested that they had been informed that he was abusing young boys in Northern Ireland when he was posted out there. But I think you can see how you kind of have these circles within circles where somebody incidentally tells us that this man, who was a legal advisor to the Dolphin Square Trust, and the gatekeeper for those who are coming in and out of the tenancies also has this definite black mark against their name. But um, anyway, I did think I, I ought to cover the subject in, in some detail, but I, I shall leave it there for now. And I think time's pushing on, so have I got time for to finish off? Yeah, go ahead. We've, we've got 15 minutes. Okay. We'll have to leave. We'll so leave this, is, this is the last slide of the day, and I thought in many ways this sums up Dolphin Square for me. <laughs> this is Lord Sewell, uh, um, Baron David Sewell, who was a Labour peer of the realm. And in 2015, he was uh, the subject of a classic tabloid sting. Um, the son had been approached by a, uh, a prostitute who had said that she had had various uh, meetings with, with uh, Lord Sewell. Um, she'd rung the son when she was drunk. Um, and had asked if they'd be interested in the story, which they were. Um, she then changed her mind when she was sober the next day. Um, so they had months and months of, of planning this and persuading her that, they, that there was public interest in the story before it went ahead. And the public interest was basically that Lord Sewell, at the time, uh, was Deputy Speaker of the Lords and had played quite a prominent role in writing up the Code of Conduct for Lords, uh, which include... Which which was meant to hold them to being uh, to selflessness, integrity, sorry, selflessness, integrity, accountability, openness, honesty, and leadership. So this was the basis on which the Sun uh, decided that they would bug 
um, saws flat and install hidden cameras. And here we have the result. They ran the story. Uh, Saul had two prostitutes with him that night, um, snorted a white powder off a table, never definitively proven what the white powder was, but I think we can all be fairly sure. Um, his one nod to propriety was he had a um, photo of his wife on the dressing table, <laughs> which on camera he picked up and put face down before he, he brought the prostitutes in. Um, he had a good old moan about the um, difficulty of living on a lord's expenses of £200 a day at the time. <laughs> Um, which is slightly ironic because he was paying each of the girls £200 for their time on that particular day. Um, and so uh, he, he, he was quoted as saying to one of the girls, I just want to be led astray. And clearly he was on this occasion. <laughs> and um, in response to this, um, Pam Ayres, the poet, Pam Ayres wrote a verse. And I'll just leave you with this because for me... She has sort of dealt with Dolphin Square in four lines better than, probably better than we have in 300 pages, but she wrote these lines. All hypocrites should take due care when snorting coke in Dolphin Square. An orange bra is not so cute and best left on the prostitute. (laughs) (laughs) Place to be proud of. We, we do have to be out of here by half past four. So, um, do we have time for a couple of questions, Sue? What do you think? No, two, two, two questions. Um, yeah, Bill, go ahead. Yeah, just a couple of supplements, really, and yeah. that um, Peter Beach was mentioned, and he was actually later. I think it was in 1976 became the first actor to posthumously win the Oscar for yeah. Best Actor. And um, I think that may still be the case. That he's I think it is, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. He also had a, an affair a bit later on with Shirley Batty. Not when they were both in Dolphin Square, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> but the other, one, the other point was that um, when Barbara Windsor died, I think it was comparatively mm. recently, the program uh, in the program about her, it was claimed, or she claimed, uh, that she only slept with Sidney Jones once. Oh, I didn't see that. Yeah. That seems unlikely, I have to say. She wouldn't love that Okay, um, unless there's... Uh, unless there's any more questions, we can quickly do the raffle. Dan, thank you so much. That was wonderful. <laughs>